at times is becoming farcical and you have to really feel for these players and management this isn't normal in any shape or form for your first chance to hear brian o'driscoll on otb download the otb sports app and turn on your notifications And you're very welcome along to The Snap here on Off The Ball, the best place for your American football fix each and every Thursday at 2pm. I'm joined as always on this occasion by Keen Fahey. Keen, how are things? Things are good, Ronan. You're looking a little bit different this week. Uh, there's all brick wall behind you like normally. No, it's a, it's a less uh, salubrious setting this time, but the same top quality content, Keen, you know that. So uh, unfortunately, we've, we've lost to discuss, but we have to start with somewhat grave topic and the thing that's dominating the news agenda in terms of American football and NFL specifically, and that is John Gruden. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, the details quite grave on the whole thing. Um, it's an upshot of the Washington football team investigation from a few months back. And the latest is John Gruden has lost his job over interactions he had and some of the maybe untoward terminology he was using in those emails. So, you know, the Gruden thing is somewhat interesting in that he, like such a high, high profile figure has fallen on the sword for it, but it's probably indicative of a of a broader problem, isn't it, Keen? Yeah, and like one of the aspects of this you have to be aware of as well is John Gruden got a 10-year contract. So getting him out of this contract was never going to be an easy thing for a Raiders. So it was going to take something like this for him to leave because the amount of money he's leaving on the table is crazy. Um it's definitely part of a larger larger aspect of it. It's this is the culture of the NFL. Like you saw the um the Raiders player who took a day, a mental leave day after he got fired just because he didn't want to be in that locker room, I'm guessing, and have to hear what was being said. Because most of the people in these teams are not not necessarily players, but most of the people in these buildings and part of the players probably think John Gruden didn't do anything all that wrong. And they probably think John Gruden should have stayed around because that's the prevailing attitude and the prevailing culture of this sport. It's why it's only recent years we're seeing black quarterbacks. It's why only recent years we're seeing black quarterbacks discussed the way they should be discussed and not just labeled as runners, no matter like when they're not athletes, they still get called runners and all this kind of stuff. So there's more, a lot more to come. Adam Schefter is getting in some trouble as well for what the way he reported the story with Bruce Allen and Gruden is the first to fall. And the other thing that's going to happen is the NFL owners are going to get dragged into this and there's going to be more revealed about them and what they did and what was said and, like the, the aspects about the Washington cheerleaders as well, which is a horrible, horrible story. And like, there's going to be more we find out. The question then becomes, who is powerful enough to just ignore it and stave off it? Because getting rid of owners is not as easy as getting rid of head coaches. And getting rid of Gruden wasn't easy, but there are other coaches out there who could probably stay in the job if they wanted to or if they had the power to because of the way the NFL is set up. Yeah, totally. It's definitely the tip of the iceberg. And we'll actually have Kavita Davidson on the Off The Ball evening show today to maybe go into a little bit more depth on the details and as you mentioned some of the associated things that might might come from this it seems to be a developing story hour by hour so yeah I think we haven't heard the last of it by any means and um, we mentioned last week Keen, that typically after four weeks we're at the quarter mark of the season we can make we can sort of steep our projections in a little bit of solid basis uh, the extra game kind of skewed that ever so slightly we are obviously past the quarter mark now week five just gone and in our preview show, you picked the Bucks and Chiefs to repeat and, and go back to the Super Bowl. I get the feeling you might have moved off at least 50% of that prediction after the first five weeks. Yeah, and we'll talk about it in greater detail, but the Chiefs are just not looking like they're going to be that team that we expect them to be because it used to be they'd play poorly and they'd still win. 
and you'd be able to ignore a lot of what happened. Well, not ignore a lot of it, but you'd be able to recognize how the order came it. And they just have, they haven't been overcoming it this year. Like Mahomes isn't necessarily playing badly, but he's not playing particularly well either. So it becomes about who's who's actually going to be in the AFC. There's arguments for the Bills. There's arguments for the Ravens because the Ravens have come through some tough games considering the issues they've had as well. There's arguments for the Chargers. And I think to me, it probably is the Chargers. I don't think we're going to talk too much about the Chargers this week, but like, you just saw the full capability of what they can do on offense last week. And you saw the full capability of Justin Herbert once again, like every single week, it's just Herbert, just Herbert, just Herbert. But that's how good he's playing. And that's how talented that team is. So yeah, but but then again, look at the NFC. Like, is there is there even another team to talk about? Like, who who can we argue against the Bucks in the NFC right now? Because I don't, I think I'm coming up with nobody. Maybe the Cowboys. Yeah, it looks like the Cowboys at this moment, and they will. We will be talking about them in more depth, as well as some of those AFC contenders that you mentioned. But before that, a reminder that our American football coverage is brought to you in association with the Erlingus College Football Classic. That's Northwestern versus Nebraska at the Viva Stadium on Saturday, August 27th, 2022. Check out com for full details on all that and ticket availability whatnot. To that end, actually, some great scenes last weekend as Nebraska and Northwestern faced each other for the first time, or for the last time, rather, before they face off in Dublin next summer. Team Ireland touchdown was in full effect on the day with an 87,000 strong attendance on site at the University of Nebraska. The sea of red was turned green by a special Irish takeover. Have a look. Yeah, Cian, certainly whets the appetite for anyone, prospective attendees at, the, at this game in Dublin next week. I know the, the college game day experience is is just so massive and like almost the, the surrounds of it as much as the game itself. It's probably a totally different experience to just watching on TV. I mean, the biggest sports show in America is built around the idea of college game day. It's not built around the idea of college football. It's built around the idea of being on college campus, being at a college game. And obviously the Ireland game won't be on a college campus. But when Notre Dame and Navy have come in the past, when you've seen other teams in the past, it's been just a phenomenal occasion. I remember the first, I went to the first one, how many years ago it is now? It must be eight years ago, whatever it is. And it was Notre Dame and just the, the colors and the excitement and the actual, like just the sheer party atmosphere of it was incredible. The amount of people that were there who were just there to have a great day, have a great time. And it, it's, it's an experience, even if you don't, thoroughly enjoy football even if you're not a crazy football fan you'll still have a great time at it so I, I can't recommend doing it enough and college 
College is a lot better than the NFL in that regard because NFL games, no one really wants to go to. They're a bit sanitized, they're a bit boring, and you can't see anything. Whereas the college, you'll have a band, you'll have people in, in the in the you'll have a halftime show. Even like when the one I was at, there was a like, I don't know how you call it. You know the way they they the bands they go out and they do like a picture where everyone's in like a formation and it creates uh, from the bird's eye view. It makes it look like something. You're, am I making any sense here at all? I know what you mean. The choreography of it. It's probably you got that aerial shot of it, and also people in the stadium with that sort of raised view would probably get a good view of it. So yeah, all things are considered. It's it's as much as there's a visual intrigue. There's the audio, the the music, and obviously the game itself is all um, preamble to that. So yeah, lots to look forward to in that regard. Make a weekend of it, like, and it's a Saturday, it's on a Sunday evening with the NFL. Yeah, hundred percent. It definitely um, tees people up again. If you want to see further details on how to attend that game, go to collegefootballireland.com. Their brand new website is waiting for you. Time for the pick six. Yeah, Keen, I promised we'd lead off with the Dallas Cowboys at least one of these weeks. We we got enough fun at their expense last season, so we should probably give them their due credit this time. They were uh, offensive pass interference ignored in that first game against the Bucks, away from being undefeated this season. They beat the Chargers, which is looking more and more like an, an impressive win. And I want to hone in specifically for the moment on Trayvon Diggs, who for my money is looking like a runaway defensive player of the year favourite. Yeah, um, in general, the Cowboys have been very impressive, like you mentioned. And it, it looked like last week that the Giants and the Cowboys are going to play one of those NFC East games. It's going to be sloppy, where the Cowboys started off, they have a fumble, they have an interception. And it looks like it's going to be a bit of a, a slogging out game. But then they just they swept them aside. They did what a good team would do. They just dominate them. And Trayvon Diggs, like you said, he's been at the, the, the center of everything because he's got an interception every single week. And Trayvon Diggs, like... So the quality of play is incredible, and we could, I'll let you you could talk about how good he's been and how good he how much he's a favorite for defensive player of the year, and that's I, I agree with you. I'm there with you. But to me, the really interesting aspect of Trayvon Diggs is the story. Like he's Stefan Diggs's brother, and when Stefan Diggs was playing for I think he was at the Vikings at the time. When Stefan Diggs was at the Vikings, Trayvon was in college at Alabama, and Nick Saban told him, "You're not a good enough wide receiver anymore. I'm going to move you to cornerback, where you'll be better at cornerback." And he plays cornerback at Alabama. He shows a lot of potential. He, he's able to play in college, but he didn't want to play there. He called Stefan and he was like, I don't want to do this. I'm, I'm disgusted. I, I can't do this. I don't want to. I'm, I'm a wide receiver. And Stefan said, just apply yourself. You'll, you'll be fine. You'll get through it. And he did it and he became an NFL draft pick. But then during his rookie year, you could see there was so much talent there, so much potential. But he also hadn't a clue what was going on. Like he kept blowing assignments. He kept blowing coverages. He kept getting beat deep. And it was just happening all, 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 all the time. And this is a, a beautiful thing about the NFL. Players go through these development curves and these development paths. And now we're seeing this year, he's still reading players. He's still making incredible coverage. And he's still making plays on the ball, obviously, with all the interceptions. But the big mistakes are gone. Like the idea of, oh, I, where should I be when this happens? What should I do when this happens? That's gone. He Now he knows exactly what to do on each play. So that's why, why we're seeing such as uh, an incredible football player. And it's, it's just a brilliant story because like, if he stayed at wide receiver or if he didn't take on Nick Saban changing in position, he probably wouldn't have even been in the NFL, never mind become a defensive player of the year candidate. Yeah, there's sort of, he smacks a bit of um, primetime Deion Sanders just in the way he moves on the field. Probably, to be fair to him, want to end the comparison there because it's, it's a big title to put him at this early stage in his career. But almost the way he coaxes um quarterbacks into throwing his direction like just going into the game you would presume let's stay away from him at all costs but whatever way he's doing it he's, he's sort of 
as I said, coaxing them to to take a chance. And it's, it won't be long until he's got that sort of Richard Sherman effect of maybe cutting off one side of the field. He does travel a little bit as well, which makes it, him a difficult assignment for most offences. But more broadly speaking, I know you're a big Dak Prescott fan, but anything, any other elements of the Dallas Cowboys that have impressed you so far? I mean, you have to talk about Dalton Schultz and all the numbers he's putting up at tight end. Like he's added a dimension there that they didn't have before. But I think it's the overall uh, efficiency and the overall effectiveness because this is a Mike McCarthy team. And you don't generally expect Mike McCarthy teams to be overall efficient and overall effective. You typically expect them to beat themselves quite a bit. And that's what the Cowboys have avoided doing. Like they've had comfortable wins, they've had close wins, they've had very impressive wins. And that loss, like you mentioned, against the Buccaneers. Really, it, it didn't feel like a loss for them. That coming back off his injury and then losing at the end because of the pass interference. They're in a really, really good position. And the reason they came to mind as a potential contender with the Bucs is because there are so many reasons why they're playing well. Like even Ezekiel Elliott looks healthier than he has in a long time. And then Tony Pollard is right there with him, looking just as good as, as a runner now. So there's layers and layers of skill position talents there. The offensive line is pretty good still. And defensively, they're doing enough to get by. Micah Parsons looks fantastic. So... The, the Cowboys are in a really good place and they could actually be a Super Bowl contender this year, which God save the rest of us if we have to hear about that because <laughs> when the Cowboys are bad, it's great. But when the Cowboys are good, Jerry Jones is going to be insufferable. Yeah, my NFL consumption and consciousness hasn't included a good Cowboy season, save for maybe Dak's rookie year and a bit of a Tony Romo run, that whole, that famous um, pass that wasn't the pass, that catch yes. that wasn't the catch. That was actually pretty dramatic, to be fair to them. And I did, was a big fan of Tony Romo. But yeah, I take your point. I think, especially in the, in specifically in American circles, when those talk shows would be leading off with Cowboys even more so, it seems to be their go-to move, even when the Cowboys are mediocre. So God knows what it'll be like when they're top of the shop. Um, we'll move on to number two in the pick six, Super Lamario, Lamar Jackson, Keane. And your contention, I'm going to bring to the audience here, is that he didn't actually play all that well in his record-breaking effort on Monday night and I would have been inclined to agree with you when he fumbled the ball on the one yard line and looked like the Colts were about to bring it back for a touchdown but the way he rallied thereafter and something we've alluded to earlier in the snap series that one of the knocks on Jackson was that he couldn't play from behind because after overturning a hefty deficit against a decent uh, Colts outfit Carson Wentz was having one of his best games in recent years and you know it looked pretty gloomy for the Ravens at one point but it was actually Lamar from the pocket and it's probably something that people overlook a bit his um, his aptitude from the pocket. He's not just a scrambling quarterback. He can actually hurt you with his arm. And he certainly did that to the Colts on Monday. Yeah, Lamar's one of the smartest, most poised quarterbacks in the pocket that's entered the league in the last 10 or 12 years. Like that just gets, it gets completely ignored because the narrative always defaults to what people said about him at the draft time. And let's get one over on them. And let's go back to them. But let's ignore them. They're not a part of the story anymore. Lamar's ability to make plays within the confines of the tackles, within the ability to reset within the pocket, his ability to be patient when he needs to be patient and be quick with the ball coming out when he needs to be quick with the ball coming out. Those are all incredibly impressive traits that he has. And the two touchdowns to Mark Andrews are both the same thing. He's staying in the pocket. The pass rush is scared of him running. So he's leveraging that. He's taking his time. He's moving from left to right. He's resetting back and forth. That's forcing the, uh, the pass rush to change direction all the time. It's also forcing the coverage to stay in coverage for longer than they're able to. Eventually, Andrews comes open. So that's the kind of thing that he's done all the way throughout his career. For this individual game, and actually, to be honest, before we get to that, the fact that Lamar cannot have his best game and still throw for over 400 yards tells you that the idea of him being important and not being a quarterback was always crazy. And it tells you just how good of a player he is. But in terms of the game, 
you look at the first half, there's three first down, three, there's three third down passes there that he completely messes up. He falls over an offensive lineman on a couple of two important runs, designed runs. It's not until the end of the second quarter where they get into field goal range and he actually has an opportunity to get a touchdown there and he misses it, so they have to settle for the field goal. The two big plays on that one was an incredible throw to Sammy Watkins over the middle where he reset in the pocket and showed incredible patience to let the underneath defender clear the passing route. And the other was a shot play to Mark Andrews that was actually just a great play design. It was then, by the end of the third quarter, it felt like Man- uh, Jackson had played poorly. The Ravens' offense as a whole had played poorly. I think they had seven points at that stage, so they weren't playing well. The fourth quarter, he was phenomenal, incredible, everything you wanted to be. So it really breaks down to, is it okay to have three bad quarters and then have one amazing quarter? Is that a good game or is that a bad game? Ultimately, it's semantics because they pulled out the win and they won at the end. But we'd probably be having a very different conversation if the uh, close kicker hadn't missed in the end of the fourth quarter. No, it is true. And the Ravens have had their luck with kicks in that, um, obviously... And there's no luck when it's Justin Tucker. Exactly. It's not luck, but um, probably the... The offsides or the the false start, I should say, probably would have put him out to seventy one yards, and even Justin Tucker might have might have struggled with that one. But yeah, the Ravens have lived by the sword a little bit. But were it not for a sort of dramatic loss to the Raiders on week one, they'd be looking at an undefeated team right now, which is fairly remarkable given the injury plague season they've had. And hopefully, they can get a few of those lads healthy. Needless to say, a couple have season and season ending injuries. But if the Ravens can be somewhat fit heading into the postseason, they're going to be a problem for anyone. Um, we move on to number three in the pick Wait, six. wait, wait. Before we, go. before we go on from the Ravens, what about Oa off the edge? Oh, he's quality. I was um, I was making the somewhat controversial point that Matt Judon could be done without and this lad is already, like, he's, I say he's already trending higher than Judon ever was. It's probably a little bit harsh on, on Matt, who was a, a good servant for the Ravens, but... I thought I always thought he was he was a little bit limited. Whereas Owe, it seems like the sky's the limit. I don't know what your take on him is. Is a like is the sky the limit, or has he got a ceiling in, in his capabilities? No, I think you got I think you got it right. He's um the the, the, un, the unfair part of it in terms of Matt Judon is Judon's a better player overall because he does better things other other ways from pass rushing. But ultimately, if you're an edge rusher, pass rushing is what matters most. So always giving them that. That's one of the things as well, though. It still uh, still frustrates me with the Ravens. Look at that ta- uh, Jonathan Taylor screen for a touchdown at the start of the game. Third and 15, and everyone's caught upfield. It's like, why? <laughs> why are you guys so crazy for blitzing and chasing upfield when you could just sit there, tackle them after four yards, get a punt, and that hopefully... That doesn't be the reason why they lose this year because it's just too frustrating. But it does feel like, oh, that's just going to happen again. Martindale's going to do the same thing again. So, But if I talk about that, I'll be talking about it every week for the rest of the regular season. So I'm going to shut up now. Yeah, it's great It's great to see Tavon Young back, though. He, he had a brilliant game where, where it not for that um, slight error of judgment at the end where he, he brought the Colts into field goal range effectively, but he was excellent elsewhere. And uh, like forcing mistakes from the Colts and actually got to the quarterback once on one of those blitzes you mentioned. So, yeah, I think the Ravens are, are looking quite good. Like, they think the injuries might catch up with them eventually, but they've already put themselves in, in good order for a playoff berth at this point. Yeah, as I said, number three in the pick six, I dream of Gino And Gino Smith, Keen, I didn't wager, would be getting any puns or mentions on the pick six, but a Russell Wilson injury has opened the door for him. It's pegged for maybe six weeks. That's the, the term they're talking about at the moment. Like those six weeks, and it seems optimistic judging by the injury. Like the Seahawks could be done and dusted by the time Wilson comes back on the field here. An I Dream of Genie reference is about as old as a Dallas Cowboys winning season. So I don't know how you've hit the sweet spot there. I've never seen his Cowboys winning season, but seeing that. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's really frustrating if you're a Seahawks fan, but it might not be the worst thing because I don't think that team was going anywhere this year. Like as we we talked about previously, they were all over the place, and they weren't just weren't they weren't connecting an offense the way they have in previous years. And Wilson was at fault, Metcalf was at fault, the offensive line was at fault, every everyone was at fault. And now you put Geno Smith in, Geno like okay, so Geno Smith, the knock on Geno Smith was always that he made too many turnovers, had too many interceptions. He would have a stretch of 10 great plays and then he'd make one play that would undo everything he did. But there were times in his career where he's put together two and three and four and five games of really high quality football. Like he's an intelligent pocket passer until the mistakes come. And I know maybe that's counterintuitive, but in terms of being able to break down a defense, in terms of being able to make different throws, in terms of being able to react against pressure in the pocket, he's capable of everything. So it's possible that the Seahawks get a good month out of him good six weeks out of him, and this doesn't kill the season, this doesn't kill the team, but it's more likely that they don't just because the team itself isn't that good. Jamal Adams is still showing why they should have never traded those picks for him, and actually, now that I mention it, they don't have their first-round pick this year, so there's actually no upside to them losing with Gino for a while because it'll just go to the Jets. So it's it's very difficult to see the Seahawks doing anything positive. It's very difficult to see them being uh, a, a playoff team or anything like that at this stage, especially in that division. But hopefully Gino plays well because I, I, I always liked him to a degree and I always felt like he was treated a bit harshly just because he played in New York. And maybe you can say the same thing with Sam Darnold and anyone else there, but there was always a level of talent for Gino Smith that just was never realized. And he's actually played well as a backup in either Seattle or other places. I can't remember which exactly, but for some reason the Chargers in my head, but I don't think that's right. When he actually came on the field initially, he, he started cooking pretty well. It's whether he can sustain that, generally speaking, over a broader body of work or when we have enough of sample size, that's when the mistakes start to creep in, probably forcing the ball too much. It's probably something we've seen with Sam Darnold, if you want to go back to that comparison where he, look, he looks good in, in limited settings, but when you need him across the whole season, that's where he's probably going to let you down. Say it is six weeks with Gino. Is it a drag and drop situation for the Seahawks in terms of, in theory, he probably can't do anything to the level that Wilson can, but is it a drag and drop scenario where they're going to stick largely with the same playbook or they're going to have to change things drastically to accommodate him? Yeah, they're very different quarterbacks, but the Seahawks don't exactly... The Seahawks... I guess the best way to explain it is the Seahawks have a quarterback who's very good running and very good outside of structure, and they embrace that side of him but they don't build plays specifically for him like that, the way the Ravens would for Lamar Jackson. It's not like they're coming in and have designed runs and have uh, quarterback draws and loads of read option plays. They have some read option plays. They're quite tiny when they use them. Gino's not an athlete. Gino's a, a pocket passer who will get you seven yards on a scramble every so often, and that's about it. He's not going to extend plays. So what they might have to do is use more intermediate route, uh, routes and more downfield routes that work the middle of the field and route combinations where he can read the, uh, the routes and actually make throws into coverage more rather than what Wilson does, which is more prioritize the outside throws and then hit deep balls. So it changes what they do, what they do, but it doesn't dramatically change it. The crazy thing is Blake Bortles got to work out in Seattle and Blake Bortles doesn't fit anything. And if he comes in, all you want him to do is run because you don't want him to throw the ball. So hopefully we hopefully Gino stays healthy because watching Gino Smith isn't that bad. Watching Blake Portons again, I can't do that anymore. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm jaded at this stage of, of uh, actually when I first started covering the NFL years and years ago, I used to watch Jaguars quarterbacks every single week for the job I was doing at the time, and it was like Chad Henney, uh, Charlie Whitehurst was there at one stage. I think it was absolute torture, and Blake Portons was meant to be the guy who came in and was like. We've got something talented and exciting. So I think I forever hate Blake Bortles for letting me down like that. Yeah, it's mad to think that 
the Jags got so close to the uh, Super Bowl with him in situ, but you know, the defense was so crazily good at that point that they almost rode their coattails and he almost got them there. But you know, it's uh, Blake Bortles, it was a bit of a fever dream that he managed to carve out a bit of an NFL career, but I think we're probably at the end of that now. Uh, number four in the pick six, Keen, something a bit more contemporary and something we touched on a good bit is the Chiefs and read them and weep. Number four, I felt I'd go to Andy Reid here because I seem to lean on Patrick Mahomes a lot for my uh, wordplay. But where does he go from here? It's not it's not an easy fix for Reid to change things mid-flow like this because the defense looks like a sieve. The offense isn't clicking overly. Like Still got decent depth there, but they've lost a couple of pieces. Clyde Edwards-Alaire doesn't look like what they bought in the sense that they, what, they, what he's listed at, his attributes haven't necessarily translated to the NFL field and where they're going to go in that department remains to be seen. Then you add in the fact that Mahomes is making mistakes that he typically normally would not make and that all meshes together for a fairly uninspiring uh, start to the season. And like, needless to say, they can arrest this and you know put a run together. They're, they are talented enough to maybe paper over these cracks, but the cracks are pretty gaping and I'm not sure how they can be fixed necessarily. Can you have a gaping crack? Wait, never mind. Let's not go there. Um, that's <laughs> so the, the the thing watching the Chiefs is like at the start of that game, Travis Kelsey is wide open down the right side lane, and Mahomes completely overthrows him. And it's it's one of these plays where it's like, wait, Patrick Mahomes doesn't miss that play. Like Patrick Mahomes misses throws, but he doesn't miss wide open big plays from completely clean pockets. And it's just another sign of okay, this is a bit weird. Everything's not right. And then Tyree Kill has a drop. And then I think we call it Hardman has a drop. And one of the tight ends has, makes a mistake in space. And it suddenly it's just, okay, the offense is just making all these mistakes now. And where, where are these mistakes coming from? We've seen this before in playoff games in the past where they then rally and they come from behind and they take over. But the quality of it isn't there. And, and like that life that Mahomes breeds into the team around him isn't there. They're adding more injuries. The offensive line isn't playing as effectively as they hoped it would after revamping it in the offseason. You come to the second half and when the, the bill or the chiefs still think they have a shot and they they mahomes has a quick throw to tyree kill on a shallow crossing route and the ball goes through his hands and goes straight to a bill's defender and he's going back for a pick six and it's like oh suddenly this game is over and it's out of reach and these are the kind of mistakes and the kind of flaws that andy reed's teams and the chiefs in particular haven't had because our chiefs with mahomes i mean in particular haven't had because mahomes has always been elevate uh, executing at such a level and everyone around them only needed to be effective enough for them to be uh, to come back from any any deficit and now everyone around him isn't executing at the same level he's still executing at a relatively high level but he's not pulling everyone around him forward with him the other part of it is josh allen obviously played very well and had the bills offense is obviously incredibly good but so many of those big plays came when Chiefs defenders were in position to play the ball in the air and they just misread the flight of it. Maybe it's an arm strength issue or whatever, but like the first touchdown, Jarius Sneed comes underneath when all he has to do is stay on the upfield shoulder of the wide receiver and knock the ball away. Dawson Knox is a big catch coming across the field in a crossing route. And I think he was a, he was a, the target for another one down the right sideline. Both of those plays, Daniel Sorensen is in perfect position to play the ball and they just let it go. Like they dropped an interception. They had so many opportunities in the second, in the, in the secondary in that defense and the pass rush isn't there either. So you're looking at the Chiefs and you're going, where do we, where do we rely on? Like we can rely on Mahomes. We hope we can rely on our offensive line. We hope our weapons get a little bit better than they've been. But the, the level of talent is not what it was last year. You mentioned Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. He's not injured as well. So it's not like they can just hope he's going to turn his season around and be, and be more effective. They've got to find guys who can step up and contribute. And 
I just don't know where they're going to go from here. And like we've talked about, like that division, how good is that division? Like, do you think there's any chance of them catching the Chargers? Because I don't. Isn't it funny, like in previous seasons of this show, we would have spoken about Mahomes over under for Super Bowls. And I think Vegas have probably said it at three or four. And we were probably picking the over given he had such a brilliant first season, then one Super Bowl and was trending towards another Super Bowl last season. But as you mentioned, like not necessarily even the AFC being fairly stacked. The His specific division is looking so impressive with Herbert in particular. And, you know, the Broncos are only going to get better and the Raiders will rebuild eventually. So, yeah, it's going to be fairly cutthroat to even get out of there into the mix of the postseason. So if he does, like, there's no doubt he will win more Super Bowls, but it's probably not going to be the procession we had figured it to be. And we should probably move on to the Bills, who are obviously the protagonists of the game in, in question. And they are number five. In the pick six, Fort Knox is number five, and Dawson Knox, uh, Keen. Like the the tight end position has always been fairly central to offenses, especially in the last ten years, fifteen years. But more so as a passing option now, it seems like all the top teams are relying principally on them as as sort of game breakers and game openers. And Dawson Knox was just a reliable, safe pair of hands, always has been. But he seemed, it was proper game breaker there against the Chiefs. And having added that option with Diggs and Emmanuel Sanders there in the mix, and they can run the ball enough, especially with Josh Allen, who was lights out with the ball in hand the other day. Like, they're a really intriguing proposition on offense there. Yeah, the, the offense there is incredible. I'd also like to note, though, you were being very kind to uh, Jar Gilroy there, because I, I remember clearly Jar being the one saying, oh, the, the Chiefs are going to be in the next 10 Super Bowls. Mahomes can win 10 Super Bowls. I was after going, Jar guys get injured. But that happens, and that's not necessarily what's happened yet, but that was a level of hype, and it was hard to argue against. Yeah, the offense is the key, really, for the Bills. So, so I don't really want to focus too much on the Bills as like the Super Bowl contenders based on this game, because th- this game was against what I believe now is an average to below average team as a whole, as a roster. So like them beating them is the similar to the Ravens being the week before, or, or two weeks before, whatever it was. It does not feel like a seminal moment for them. I still think there are ways to go before they can prove themselves as like one of the very best teams in the league. Maybe they are just by the the, the measure of how good everyone else is and where they stand overall. But offensively, yeah, it's incredible because what they've really figured out is putting Josh Allen in a spread doesn't really take away their running game because he can still run the ball. Like you look in that first touchdown, he ran the ball in as a, that's a design quarterback run. You see in the second half when he needs that crucial third, third down conversion, he's hurdling a defender in space. They're able to spread the offense out and be just a passing team and maintain balance because their quarterback can run. And once Allen's making good enough decisions, once he's being accurate enough with the ball, it's very difficult to stop them because you've got Stefan Diggs, you've got Emmanuel Sanders as a perfect fit for what they do. You've got um, you've got Dawson Knox, like you mentioned. You've got a bunch of receivers and tight ends there who are capable of getting open and capable of making adjustments to the catch point. Um, you mentioned uh, Knox, he's made... The it's the, the thing he does very well is not necessarily high pointing the ball. So you talk about the the changeover of tight ends and what when tight ends started becoming a bigger deal. It was with Jimmy Graham and Rob Gronkowski and Antonio Gates before him. But Jimmy Graham was always the one who was like famous for high pointing the ball, which means he would reach his hands up as high as he could and pull the ball down. So he would get the ball at a point where a defender couldn't get near it. So it was never a contested catch, even though it was tight coverage. Dawson Knox is a little bit of that in him, where if you put the ball high enough he's generally going to win it and pull it down and bring it in. And his ability to do that is very valuable for Allen because Allen's an aggressive decision maker. He would throw into tight coverages. But also, unlike Jimmy Graham, 
he then has more flexibility in his hips and more speed and out in space to break off those big plays from deep as well. So he's a very valuable player and they've got a perfect storm of players there and receivers and, and tight ends and offensive line. And with Alan now being fully paid, this is kind of their sweet spot because it's going to be difficult for them to retain everyone. It's going to be difficult to fill the spots that are going to come as guys get uh, uh, poached away in free agency and as guys go through more inconsistency over the coming years. So maybe this year is actually very important for this Bills team. It's an interesting one. The the wide receiver two position is so fundamental to everything as well. I, I gave some love to Dustin Knox, but Emmanuel Sanders, everywhere he goes, he has that sort of impact. And we talked about AJ Green last week and the dynamic he offers. And then... Like Deshaun Jackson at the Rams even had that breakout day against the Bucks. Like when um, Cooper Cup's being covered, this guy's like breaking lines as well. So it is a very important position. But we should just focus on Josh Allen maybe for a moment. That I don't know what your evaluation was of him coming into the league, Keen, or even after season one, he looked particularly raw. But I can't recall a player maybe closing that talent gap so quickly in terms of improving his accuracy more so. Like accuracy to me would seem like an intuitive thing and probably something you can't coach. But he's come on leaps and bounds and, and he fairly bossed that game against the Chiefs the other day. I'm trying to think. There is one other person, but it's only one. Like Josh Allen's uh, development from like Josh Allen in college, if you go back to, I think it was Wyoming he played for, like there are literally plays where he's got a receiver who's 20 yards open. There's no one around him in the pocket and he throws the ball into the dirt like 15 yards away from him because he just does not know how to throw the ball. And his rookie year, he was historically inaccurate. He was horrendous. He could not throw the ball anywhere close to his receivers. And it was no, no fault of the receivers. It was no fault of his pass protection. He was just beating himself over and over and over again. He had no understanding of velocity, no understanding of trajectory, no understanding of placement relative to the coverage he was throwing against, and generally just no control of the ball. They've fixed his mechanics. His mechanics is how he throws the ball, his footwork when he's throwing the ball. And that's improved and brought him to a level. The, to me, he's gone from being a god-awful quarterback, someone who shouldn't be in the league, shouldn't be starting at all as a rookie, to an average to maybe below average starter with bloated stats in his second year, to now being on the other side of average, being above average to maybe average still overall just because the mistakes aren't being punished and we'll see how it goes over the remainder of the season. I still think it's premature for people to talk about him the way we've talked about Mahomes, the way we've talked about Jackson, the way you talk about an Aaron Rodgers, because I don't think he's on that level. But I think he's got, or he, he's, he's done an incredible job of developing from someone who looked like he was going to uh, flush out of the league very quickly to become a long-term franchise starting quarterback and someone who's worthy of the position he holds in the league right now. He's got paid a ridiculous amount of money and it's going to be very interesting to see how that impacts the, the bills over the coming years, but they've got to be delighted with what they've got and they've got to be delighted with the, the fate being repaid. So they, and again, once you incorporate that athletic skill set, it's just, it, it's crazy to watch. It's fun to watch, but it's very difficult to stop if you're a defender. Yeah, the, he's, he's like a tight end at quarterback sometimes, the way he moves around. Obviously, the the likes of Tom Brady and Peyton Manning of years gone by were obviously very tall coming in, but his athleticism is a bit of a, a game changer. And we, we speak about athleticism at the quarterback position and, and what it can open up for an offense and the way he was keeping the ball in hand and just tearing through the Chiefs at will the other day. I'm sure other teams will be wise to it, but it's easier to theorize a way to stop it as opposed to practically stopping it. So the Bills are going to be a problem, but there are some plenty of uh, decent teams in the AFC. It's going to be make for an interesting playoffs. And number six in the pick six, Kane, the the lesser lesser spotted area of football that we don't actually talk about all that much is the, the foot to the ball, the kicking aspect of it, and fairly deplorable showing from the NFL kickers. Like I find it unfathomable 
that there aren't 32 people in America who can go over and like kick a fairly rudimentary kick from right in front of the goalpost. But that was the case the other day where several games were decided by an inability to do so. Number six, I've gone with Missing Crosby. Poor Mason Crosby has to fall down because his name just lent itself so well in this situation. But I don't know if you have any theories on why it's been so bad or what you think is going to be the format going forward because Justin Tucker seems to be the exception rather than the rule. No, it's it's crazy. Like the way it goes, it's volatile, obviously, because these are small samples of kickers. Like you can come on and kick the ball twice in the game, and like your every every uh, perception of what you did that day is based on just two plays, which is very different for a quarterback, obviously, or anyone else on the field. Um, so I've kind of got one argument for defending kickers and defending Americans. Uh, the, the obvious comparison is rugby, rugby ball, similar to American football, but it's not. A rugby ball has a flat surface, like so when you're kicking it, your your foot's kicking through something like that, so it's a big surface area to hit. And American football is like that. It's angular, so you're hitting a very small surface. So that's why when you see kickers hitting the ball and it screwballs and it's like a it's like a bad golf shot, it's because of that surface aspect. So even though you're straight in front of goal and every single shot is straight in front of goal, it should be in theory very easy. It's not. It's all about hitting that sweet spot and making sure you get the connection right every single time, which is what Justin Tucker does. Like the way he strikes a football is unbelievably smooth and unbelievably consistent. And the way Americans teach kicking is not the way they do over here. And this is kind of the argument against kickers and against why this should be much easier. Americans like to break kicking down into every minute detail of every minute movement. Like if they had David Beckham as a child and they saw him flexing his ankle and getting right sideways when he's taking free kicks, they'd go to him, no, that's wrong. That's not the technique you're supposed to do. Let me teach you how to do this properly. So then when you go to kick a ball, you're thinking about the 10 different things you need to get right in your wind up to it and your how you approach it. Whereas we all grow up over here and it's like kicking everything, kicking soccer balls, kicking footballs, kicking rugby balls. So we all naturally know how to kick things. Like if you just know an American and like, if, and I've done this before with people who I knew in America who were sports fans who weren't athletes or anything like that and just giving them a soccer ball and seeing them what they do with a soccer ball. It's like they're scared of it. They don't know how to like it. It's like it's an animal and they're kind of wandering around it and going, how do I figure this thing out? Whereas the rest of us are just like, oh yeah, I know exactly how to do this because I've been doing it since I was four. You haven't done it at all in your life. So essentially Americans don't play enough soccer. And that apocryphal tale of Ronan O'Gara threatening to try out for the Miami Dolphins back at the time when he was leveraging for perhaps a new deal from the IRFU. Obviously, there was nothing in it ultimately. But are you telling me that if Joey Carberry decided enough of this, getting getting hit all the time, I'm going to actually just go over and be a kicker in in American football? You don't think he'd take to it like a duck to water? Oh, absolutely, he would. I always thought Johnny Wilkinson should have done it because he could have done like he would still be playing in the NFL right now because he was also like built to just tackle guys at kickoffs as well. Do you remember? Um, was it Jackie Cyril did the the code switching uh, channel? I can't remember or TV show. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, he went and played baseball, and they gave him a baseball glove, and he was trying to use the baseball glove to catch the ball in the outfield, and he was like, "I can't use this," and just threw it away and just started catching it like the way you catch a hurling, uh, catch it in hurling, and I was like. The, the guys watching him were like amazed at how he could do this because they were all used to using the massive glove and didn't know how to catch the ball without a glove. That's what it would be like if we sent rugby players. Or, actually, to be honest, soccer players. I know there's been a Harry Kane link before, but soccer players would probably make even more sense, to be honest. Yeah, it's like when Michael Murphy went to um, play for Claremont de Verne, like he just he kind of talked to it pretty well and you get the impression. It would actually be something, I know people like to do this as a bit of a fad or maybe just for a TV show, but I actually think if we got behind a, a rugby player and try to mold them into an American footballer, I think we could 
easily make it happen in the kicking sphere specifically I'm talking about but um, we'll move on to our competition game for this weekend Keen, and we've mentioned both of the competitors already it's the Chargers at the Ravens which on paper looks like the game of the weekend the Ravens are favoured by three points I'll get your prediction in a moment but the prizes on offer this week as ever are co-branded beanies and caps uh, off the ball and American Football Ireland so be sure to reply to this stream or get us at off the ball with the hashtag OTB snap with your prediction. Once again, the Ravens are favoured by three points in this one at home in Baltimore. Who are you leaning towards, Keen? I used to have a rule. If you gave me points with Lamar Jackson, I was taking the Ravens no matter what the points were, no matter who the opposition was. But I think so far this year, my rule now has to be if you give me points with Justin Herbert, I'm going to take that side no matter what. So this is going to be a great test of that. And if it fails me this time, I'll never do it again. But I'm going to go with the Chargers, even though the Ravens look pretty damn good. And what do you think the keys to victory are in that game specifically? Because as I said, it's looked like two behemoths of the conference. We could be seeing this game again later in the season. Like, where do you think it's going to be won and lost? How much of an impact Joey Bosa has on the Ravens' offensive line if he's able to get in, like Kevin Zeitler's there at right guard now, if he's able to get in and break break up a couple of uh, those running plays, it could very possibly lead to fumbles and lead to blown uh, handoffs because that's how quickly he beats offensive linemen. If the Ravens can neutralize him by running a more diverse attack and have him moving sideways rather than coming upfield, that will be huge. The uh, On the other side of the ball, like I said, it's 100% Martindale don't blitz Herbert every single time because if you keep blitzing him, he's going to cut you open. We've seen what he does in third downs. He's going to have the receivers to get open against your cornerbacks, against your safeties. They have Austin Eckler there who's a great screen receiver who could break off huge gains. It would not surprise me at all if the Chargers took a lead similar to the Colts like the Colts did last week. And if that happens, like I don't think they're going to come back the way they did against the Colts because the Colts aren't a good football team whereas the Chargers are a very, very good football team. There you have it. Needless to say, I'm leaning towards um, Baltimore with their, with their minus three points, but it's going to be a really competitive game and the Chargers seem to be everybody's second team, a growing trend. I don't know if teams actually want that title, but the, the LA Chargers have captured the imagination, certainly. At times it's becoming farcical and you have to really feel for these players and management. This isn't normal in any shape or form. For your first chance to hear Brian O'Driscoll on OTB, download the OTB Sports app and turn on your notifications.